Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? This is T. Trevor. Go to the Champagne Sharks Twitter account, at Champagne Sharks, one word. But most importantly, subscribe by going to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks. That's patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks, $5 a month. You get double the episodes. You get access to the Discord voice and chat server. Due to Discord voice and chat server, you get to ask questions of our guests too. So that's one thing. You get advanced notice of our guests and you also get to ask uh, them questions. That's always fun. Uh, you don't have to be surprised like everyone else when the episode comes out. And we're working on a newsletter. I've been promising this for a while, but it's coming closer to reality. I just had to figure out the logistics of it, which is coming along okay. And Last thing, uh, follow us on YouTube. We've been doing live streams there. Just Google, I mean, search on YouTube, Champagne Sharks. You'll see the channel and subscribe at the channel. We're trying to get to a thousand. And we've already done a few test live streams, so you can go check those out. And we did one with Brett from Street Fight as well that a lot of people like. And that's enough of the housekeeping. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest, uh, Ken Klippenstein, if you can just, um, you know, tell the people where to find you and what you do and what you're about. Hey guys, um, I work for The Nation magazine now. I previously worked for The Young Turks. Um, I would I cover a lot of different things, but I would say my focus has been national security because I uh, find that a lot of national security coverage tends to be sort of reactionary. And I think that that unfortunately has accelerated under Trump, um, in part because of sort of liberal PTSD about, you know, an admittedly very dangerous president. And now you have liberals saying, uh, you know, FBI, protect us, CIA, protect us. And so I think there's a lot more credulity uh, in the face of these, you know, historically very, uh, you know, historically institutions and agencies that have like very muddled pasts, to say the least. Um, so that's that's sort of why I focus on it. I mean, one weird, really weird thing that happened. Do you remember when... Um the former head of the FBI, uh, Comey, was going to Howard. I forgot what he was doing at Howard, but let me remember what he was doing there. Oh, yeah. Howard University has appointed their former FBI director to serve as the Gwendolyn S. and Colbert I. King endowed chair in public policy for the 2017-2018 uh, year. So he's going to lead five lectures on different topics. It would be great if his lecture was on COINTELPRO. <laughs> you know that would be well i'm sure i'm sure it, it won't be and the irony, uh, here, the irony here yeah. almost reminds me of when the fbi you know they have their big performative tweets about mlk day i always thought that was yes <laughs> yes sort of darkly funny. and and, and, and Hasi coates tweeted like you know this is a great win for howard howard wins again you know this is alma mater and people were like are you serious like like Hasi coates seriously he got like a lot of, i mean this is back when he was tweeting it's probably one of the things that made him get off because people would get mad at him for, for different stuff but that one was uh a lot of people would get looking at him um funny style for that like i think a lot of the grief he gets can be unfair but that one i thought was very deserved but yeah but it, it just goes to show what you're saying that you know it's it's getting really weird as far yeah, as historically uh, liberals had you know had at least some skepticism particularly towards the cia um and now uh you know these agencies are being treated as uh sort of part and parcel of the resistance and um you know i wouldn't go as far as like the conservative commentators have said where they're like talking about you know the deep state because um i think these agencies by and large are fine with the trump administration um but yeah i, I wish i wish we had some of that um skepticism that that the left used to have do you think there's a difference between because i know some people like to not just look at things as like you know left versus right but liberals versus leftists and you like more radical uh journalists 
But do you find, even if you try to find more radical journalism spaces, that people are really taking the deep state beat very seriously? Or is it lack of resources, lack of interest? Because you seem to have some measure of success in this area, but you seem to be one of the few that, you know, I find that's really doing this stuff, even on the more radical spaces. I would say um, institutionally, there definitely is a lack of resources. It's a very expensive thing to do um, because, you know, this began under Bush, ramped up under Obama. The, the you know, they're prosecuting people for leaking classified information to the media, you know, which is and they're using the Espionage Act to do it. And that's without precedent. So people are very paranoid um, and not, you know, unreasonably so to talk to the press. And because of that, um, they prefer to meet in person, you know, developing their trust takes a long time. So it's very it's a very cost intensive process. And so I would say that's one institutional reason that sort of left media has shied away from these things because it's a lot more expensive than, um, you know, creating a sort of funny or clever essay, for instance. So that's one factor. But I think another factor is um, you have to be a lot of these sources. I think it would surprise people, but a lot of these sources um, that I've relied on for my reporting um, have wildly different politics than me. Um, and without getting you know too much into specifics because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, that I can I would imagine I know I know from personal experience that with other kind of left reporters that can be sometimes difficult to stomach because you have to go sort of go into a world that you might agree with almost nothing that you know what these guys are saying. But my view is um, we should know what these agencies are doing and what they're up to. So. Um, and it you know, it's, of, it's kind of yeah. a lot of cognitive dissonance when you're talking to somebody who is comes from way to the right of where you are, you know. I, and, and I'm trying to find a way to ask this question without getting you to reveal more information about your source that might get them in trouble. But I'm trying to ask this as broad as possible. What would motivate somebody to want to burn the FBI or the CIA from from the right? Like in the most general description you can give me without having to say anything because i'm kind of curious because that, that kind of surprised me what, what you just said right there um well without being too like self-aggrandizing um i think like if you interviewing is it's it's crazy to me that law enforcement that that we even have a torture debate because you'll find the best way to get information from people is not actually through coercion in fact complete opposite if you just sort of show them you don't have horns um you know build rapport with them and just be nice people kind of have their um, ideological affiliations, but but that sort of melts away as they're kind of like, oh, this guy's all right. I kind of like him. So I would say there's a big factor of just kind of like they like you and they want to, you know, they want to be helpful to you as a reporter. But um, commenting on sources generally, I mean, I have sources in ICE whose politics would probably turn your stomach. They did mine. And even they are horrified by the extent and the sort of intensity and ferocity with which um, the, you know, deportations are being carried out. So I would say there's way more dissension within the institutions as bad as they are and as bad as the ideologies are inside of them even people inside are um getting upset with 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 how how awful things are getting um so i would say mm. that's another factor but i would say it's largely like i know there's this popular notion that people are just leaking to get one over on their boss or you know advance some certain interests or something in my experience it's it's often pretty sincere um and maybe so sincere that it's even sort of heartbreaking like it almost seems naive in a way because they think they can change or help something that is just so huge and structural and institutional that clearly one story won't change it, but they seem to believe that they that it might or that they have some obligation to try. So th that's something that's been really nice for me. The, the job has really humanized people that, uh, not to you know get into this kind of like centrism thing, but like you yeah. do really see that people can have integrity um, aside from their ideology, ideological commitments. And, and sometimes the ideologies are, are sort of superficially held and they'll actually do things that violate them if they can see that it's the right thing to do. 
That actually is kind of uh, encouraging to hear because, you know, I've been losing a lot of faith in people the past couple of years with uh, a lot of stuff that's been going on. Has stuff like the reality winner stuff had like a chilling effect? Like like certain things, because I, f- I feel like after that reality winner thing, we just haven't been hearing a lot about leaks in general. Like uh, people still going after Snowden, uh, Chelsea Manning getting uh, all this grief and getting locked up again. And I just feel like with the Wiki- with the WikiLeaks, with Snowden, all this stuff, there was this kind of wave, reality winner, there was this kind of wave of leaks and investigative reporting that just kind of, I feel just trickled, just nothing. I couldn't agree more, man. Um, when this first started happening under Obama, when it, I mean, when it really accelerated, um, I started, they went as far as trying to coerce, uh, you know, in, in the court, a New York Times journalist, um, James Risen, to um, reveal a source um, that he used in an article that contained classified information. Um, people were really, you know, freaked out, and, and rightly so. But for whatever reason, I would speculate that the Trump administration has taken all the air out of the room. And because of the FBI's role in the investigation, really, I think, helped the intelligence community to uh, sort of endear them more to the sort of liberal progressive wing that would have been critical of them for what they were doing in the past. Um, because, because, Trump has been, because Trump has been kind of antagonistic with various figures in the intelligence community, right? I think so, yeah. Or at least yeah. the leadership the leadership of them. Um, so I would and, say that's and, part of it. And this, yeah. I'm sorry. and this current media class will is just ready to just crown anyone that Trump gets into an argument with as right. like, exactly. you know, a member of the so called hashtag resistance. So. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a big factor. And I would say another one is just that um, it's sort of an open secret in Washington, but a lot of what the New York Times reports is leaked to it leaked to them from the White House. So a lot of these horrifying stories appear to come about immigration, for instance, appear to come. You know, I, I know this. I know people on the Times and this is what they tell me. A lot of these stories are actually coming from the people that we're supposed to think the stories make them look terrible, which they do. That's part of their branding. So like Stephen Miller, I think, is happy to get a lot of these stories um, that come out about mm, the but, terrible things he's doing to immigrants because that's what that's his brand is he. He wants to be kicking them in the teeth, you know? No, yeah, it's very true. And I was telling someone something similar in that there were these people tweeting, a lot of these kind of media people and people who like to do like tweet threads talking about, hey, stupid Trump voters, how do you feel now? Where's your wall? And I was saying, this is the wall. Like the wall doesn't have to be a literal wall. In lieu of a wall, this is like a metaphorical, like that kick in the teeth constantly kicking the immigrants in the nuts or making asylum harder and harder and harder. That is a figurative manifestation of like what people were hoping for at the wall. Like maybe they're not getting a literal, literal wall, but this constantly leaking stuff that kind of shows like what they're doing for um, asylum cases, especially for Mexicans. Like if you ever set a Google alert for asylum, it's like uh, horrifying. They basically make it impossible. Even people with pending asylum, they put this, new ridiculously onerous things on it so that you basically are not going to be able to work uh at all before they deport you so they're hoping that you'll just be too broke to stay and end up you know leaving or whatever they, it's it's really it's really crazy stuff but but yeah i'm not surprised basically that the uh that they're leaking this stuff on purpose because yeah i agree they want this image it's not it's a feature not a bug yeah i would say i would distinguish too between what i call authorized leaks leaks that um the administration whoever's in charge the leadership the bureaucratic leadership are okay with happening because they because it reflects well on them or is advantageous to them politically and then unauthorized leaks an approach i have that's much different from many journalists is i target in general I'm not talking about this article. I'm talking about in general, I target rank and file officials. So if I have someone in the Department of Homeland Security, I'll 
prefer to develop a relationship with an ordinary person because they're on the ground that they're actually doing the work and they tend to be less indoctrinated. They tend to have fewer political incentives and they just tend to be more honest. And that's the opposite approach um, of what many at the, you know, more establishment media outlets tend to approach, which is that they go to dinners and things with the leaders and everything. I don't think that's a great way to find out the reality of what's happening. I think that's a good way to find out what the um, politicals and the leadership wants you to think is happening. Yeah, totally. And uh, the 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 particular story that made me want to have you on, I wanted to have you on before, but I wasn't able to uh, get my schedule together in time. And I was worried like, oh, if I take too long, it's going to be a data story because it's going to blow up everywhere. And surprisingly, nobody went with it. And honestly, I think only you reported it that I found. And then a few of the people reported your reporting of it, uh, which is the Black Identity Extremist Memo. And if you can um, just give us some background on how that came to be, that story and and like the aftermath of it, because I think it's very crazy that like, even like black people in general don't really talk about this uh, story. Yeah, it was interesting. It seemed to stimulate a lot of concern. I saw a lot of ordinary black folks just on social media that seemed concerned about it, and especially the um, parallels. Many were drawn with COINTELPRO on the part of just like ordinary readers. But yeah, the media unfortunately didn't follow up on it. I was actually quite bitter about that because I had hoped that this, you know, stimulates some kind of at least reflection about whether or not we should be worshiping the intelligence community as as, as folks on the left, I mean. Um, but the, what I got, I had leaked to me a bunch of um, documents that the FBI had produced um, under what's called called its Consolidated Strategy Guide, which lays out its um, sort of pri- uh, priorities. It was like, uh, what was it called? Counterterrorism priorities. So these, so they list these priorities, and it's not just a list that determines to how resources are directed and, and you know, how much time and, and you know, stuff essentially they have to, to respond to these, you know, so-called uh, terrorism threats. And on that list of counterterror priorities for, um, I got three different directives for the years um, 2018, 2019, and 2020. And what each of them showed was that um, starting in 2018, it looks like they added to their counter-terror priorities uh, what what they called um, Black identity extremists. And then they changed that to a um, euphemism after, you know, an outcry. They they now, what my documents show is that they basically kept the definition of it while publicly, because these are all basically internal and secret. Nobody knows what they say. So after the FBI had claimed that they dropped that designation, narrowly, they were maybe technically right because they don't use the word, they don't use the exact phrase black identity extremists anymore, but they kept the exact same definition, all the constituent, you know, many of the constituent parts of it. And now they just call it a euphemism, which is racially, racially motivated um, extremists. And, and that, that was going on until 2020. Yeah. They, um, it was, it was interesting because they made these new memos and I don't know if the new memos, uh, if what you're saying is that the new memos were kind of created because of the black identity extremist um backlash but yeah basically the new memos just used the euphemisms like you said but is this mainly 90 degree a 90 percent cut and paste it's just mostly cut and paste of the old one with just different like like very little change uh in the show notes um which is going to be available to patrons you can look and see the original like FBI uh, leaked documents, and they they made two name changes. They changed it racially motivated extremism. Then it became I don't know why that wasn't good enough. Th- then they eventually changed it to racially motivated violent extremism. You know, uh, but it's 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 very interesting because it's very broad. The moral equivalencies in the documents are really uh, scary because they're 
if, if you didn't know anything about what was going on in this country in the past, in the last couple of years or decades, you would think that there were equal numbers of news stories of, um, you know, spree shootings and mass shootings by, uh, you know, I'm not even sure what they imagine um, a black identity extremist is. I don't know if they're talking well, they about- actually, uh, In yeah. the document, there's many pages. So, uh, you know, I would encourage readers to go through it themselves, but um, they actually provide illustrations of this um, extremism. And what's interesting is they have white supremacists and there have there are just, you know, endless cases of that. And they, they mentioned, like, yeah. I think like a dozen of them. And then when they have to produce examples for the black identity extremists and then the racially motivated ones, they don't provide any examples at all because there are none. And what's yeah, yeah. the way they define it, they didn't even say like the way they, they literally in the definition, and this wasn't public when it first came out the, that they were using this designation, they actually include in the definition of black identity extremists, the Ferguson protests um, as yes, part of their definition yes. of, of where it came from, which is like that's and, overtly political, you know, like that's really and, scary, and, I think. It's really scary. And and that's what that's what I mean. Like, like do you mean, since, since there's, there's not... A, a lot of real life cases like like the only case i could think of is like those people who shot cops but they were like lone wolves who usually had mental issues that's and right and that's really... what if you talk to law enforcement that's what they love to point to they're like well we had that one case in texas or what or uh, they say chris dorner or something like that but the thing is they didn't include that in the definition because they know it's bullshit because they know it doesn't have any that has nothing to do with like um yeah the guy they... the guy in bed's the guy in bed style, right. stuff there's like, like that. One or yeah, two yeah, but it's really loose. And yeah, yeah, and that, and, that, and that guy heard that guy heard voices. He wasn't like part exactly. of an, or, exactly. an organization that. But I'll actually read the definition because it's not that it's not that long. I'll just read the definition real. And this is just so vague. You can just kind of use this on anybody, really. Uh, black identity extremists. It's a threat definition. Black identity extremists, also BIEs, uh, throughout the. Uh, piece use force or violence in violation of criminal law in response to perceived and these were perceived um, racism and injustice in American society. Some do so in furtherance of establishing a separate black homeland or autonomous black social institutions, communities, or governing organizations within the USA. A desire for physical or psychological separation is typically based a religious or political belief system, which is sometimes formed around or includes a belief in racial superiority or supremacy. And the, and the longer this definition goes on, the more I really wonder, like, what is your example? Because one or two of these sentences, I could think of something, but all taken together, like, you know, um, like, what are these black groups that want to form a separate black homeland in America while using force and violence and also want, like, psychological separation? Like... At this point, connecting it to Ferguson makes makes no sense makes no sense to me because that's not what Black Lives Matter and the Ferguson protesters were kind of wanting. But but also like, what if you just want to? Because because there's um woke black people who say things like, "Hey, uh, we should have our own black neighborhoods and make them strong and our own black institutions," and they're just talking about like capitalist pipe dreams of like black buying power and stuff but like consumer under this stuff yeah consumer stuff or like you know maybe like you know our own magazines and newspapers and businesses whatever but this is broad enough that the fbi can just start uh saying hey that's um a desire to in their words establish autonomous black social institutions communities or governing organizations within the usa like people like that can be um covered like a marcus garvey type can be covered yeah so i don't really that's why i want to know who who is this for like nation of islam can be put under this even though yeah, wanna, as far as i, I know 
I want to stress that we don't know who it includes because they didn't say they didn't provide any they examples. But we do know it's not that they just don't provide examples because if you go to the section for the counterterror section for white supremacists, they do provide examples. So for whatever reason, yep. they decided not to mention any groups for the black identity extremists. And the definitions that they do have are pretty pretty broad. You can pretty much pull in any black person who said anything uh, could perceive them as woke or anti-racist and and get them into this into this definition. It's it's uh, uh some more parts of the definition. Uh some BI some BI oh here we go. Retaliation and retribution for perceived wrongdoings against African Americans has become an organizing driver for BIEs. You know, so if so if you're protesting injustice against black people, that gets you called the BIE. Some BIEs desire separation from perceived oppressive forces, law enforcement, U.S. government personnel, and other oppressive forces who are viewed as participants in this perceived unjust institutional system. And the word "perceived" over and over is very uh, kind of gaslighting. Like they make sure to make to let you know that none of this has any basis in reality, this oppression. It says this type of targeting has become a more obtainable goal for BIEs, which is a crazy thing to not elaborate on. They're saying that this retaliation has become more obtainable, but based on what are they saying that? Because like we said, there's no examples. There's no anything. Like, why is it more obtainable? Why is it more obtainable for them to get retribution now than before, like what has changed? No, no. Uh, and why is this a yeah. counter-terror? This is a counter-terror priority. This isn't like some subsection of a booklet they have that's a thousand pages long. This is a this is a priority among what like ten that are on the list. Like also on the list was like I think like Al Qaeda affiliates. It's like come on, like you yeah. know, it's just no sense of proportion. Yeah, and it's one of those things I wonder: is it meant to be like red meat? for their like i don't even know what the even point of this because being that it's not really publicized in a pro or con way really like no one's really talking about it it's not really red meat to their constituency the way that ice stuff is i i, I mean I, I don't really know what the motivation do you have any idea of that like what is this is about or is it just they just i don't know what they fear i, I don't know it's a lot of one, it makes no sense to me, really. Yeah, I heard from one person. I'm trying to think of how to describe them because it was a small thing, so I don't want to identify them. But somebody, yes, of course, somebody, a federal official who would know, described to me White House meeting in which there was a Pence staffer that requested this. I don't know that for certain because I couldn't find someone else to verify it with, since many of the people in the group had certain. Oh, I don't want to get too specific, but this person would know. So yeah. I, I think that there is, I think that there is a good chance that it came from the White House. Um, Why that is, I don't know, but um, it looks like it, this wasn't internal to the FBI. And some of these um, code names seem like people have been watching too many um, movies and <laughs> stuff like that. What is but, it, Iron uh, Fist? It, yes, that's what I was going to ask you. What can you explain what Iron Fist is? Um, so the way they define it, that's a code name for a program that would. Um, recruit confidential informants within these so-called black identity black identity extremist cells, who would then uh, give them information supposedly on you know whatever their uh, machinations uh, these groups are. Um, and what's interesting about it is it sounds pretty sophisticated because it describes um, surveillance. It describes uh, like when you're getting to the point of like confidential informants, that's like what you do with like uh, you know narco trafficking or like terror groups or something and so i was sort of surprised by how sophisticated a response to something that they again couldn't produce any examples of um violence that you know had uh, resulted in anyone getting killed even was 
but yeah, they use this code name Iron Fist. And it's very interesting because they use code names for other things. And I mentioned this in the story. I try to give people examples of other things so that they can see that I'm not just, you know, maybe the FBI is silly in general. They do this stuff with everyone. Um, but what was, but if you look at the other code names they use, this I, I think by far was the sort of most sinister sounding one. The other code names um, are just sort of seem like random words they chose. Yeah, yeah. The Iron Fist seemed pretty, uh, pretty bad, and they seemed to really be into trying to get people who are already convicted felons, because I guess the kind of figuring uh, with previous strikes, then it can really lock people away. So th- yeah, there's a lot of talk about like prior felons, but but you know what? They kind of mentioned very in passing here that really jumped out at me in the memo uh, under the strategy overview part. They say the vetting process and time investment to gain access to leadership in BIE groups is very lengthy the use of undercover employees which is nothing new online covert employees in bie investigations would provide valuable intelligence to assist in mitigating the threat and that online covert employees i find that really interesting right do you think there's like a bunch of people in the fbi headquarters or whatever just online uh trolling and doing in groups like like because i think a lot of people underestimate the amount of agents or the like people always say the word agents kind of like as a slang word, like, like, you know, uh, pejoratively, but I think there's probably a lot of literal agents well, talking so pro back online. They have yeah. these things called fusion centers that allow them to share intelligence with local law enforcement. And so when you look at the number of contractors and other law enforcement agencies, right down to local law enforcement that might be working with them on something like this, then that number indeed is very, very large. Um, the question is how much information sharing they have. And I don't know the answer to that because they're so secretive about of course, a lot of yeah. this stuff. But again, if you compare this to the other things, they don't, I, to, from what I remember of the memos, they don't describe this sort of long drawn out process of gaining trust of people when you look at the other groups and if i remember right they didn't describe that about the uh uh white supremacists either no no they kept it kind of uh vague and i'm sure their excuse is going to be we don't want to give away our operational uh, right secrets okay. of, yeah how we're going how we're going to uh do this i remember george bush used to say that like, like his, his reason for <laughs> is like, you know, yeah. Hi, <laughs> yeah yeah the enemy's going to know what, what we're planning if you know this they have, a, they have a euphemism for it. Within the intelligence community, the indoctrination is just insane. And they a lot of them believe this stuff, until, at least until something bad happens to them, and then they start to realize that a lot of it is a fraud. But they have this thing they call, it uh-huh. sources, and they call it sources and methods. So they say, oh, as much as we'd love there to be um, transparency for the public, we can't disclose our sources and methods because that's going to inhibit our ability to continue to keep everyone safe and, and in harmony. And, and and you know what? It works because uh, when the New York Times did some kind of uh, leak of something that Bush was doing that was anti-terrorism, and plus it was right after 9-11, so people were very um, on edge about that stuff. All the, the talk radio and the rush types and Fox News they didn't use the word sources and methods, but it was that thing. They're like, oh, now uh, New York Times has endangered our boys and girls abroad fighting for us. And New York Times lost a lot of subscriptions and they worked the right wing into like a, a froth. Like, you know, um, people like canceled uh, subscriptions. But yeah, the the online covert employees thing, I thought was really interesting. And I think about that sometimes because like, um, I mean, I'm under no illusions. Like this podcast and stuff is like a small fry. It's not, it's not like really anything, but uh, I remember, like when we had like a Reddit. Uh, we still have the Reddit. Uh, we don't run. We don't run the Reddit. It's uh, some fans that run the Reddit. But sometimes I go in there, like, you know, and just look at stuff, see what was going on, say hello. And then there was one guy that was like, uh, "Hey, you know, I really like this podcast. It's a 
really good podcast, but you know, what do you think about like killing white people? I, I was like, what? You know, <laughs> I was like, I was like, uh, seriously, you know, and and like I'm like, okay, this guy might as well just have a screen name like like not a cop, but <laughs> but, but, but but you know what I was thinking too? Like, what if people that they put out there are like that on purpose? Like, say someone else messages you and like, hey, can you believe um, that guy? And like, you laugh together. But maybe they're both working together, like th- like three-card money. Maybe he's like the obvious decoy. And then they put somebody else that you bond with to um, call him out as a cop. And then that person's a cop. And just, just the fact of not even knowing, I think, can like fuck, fuck you up. Like, this yeah, kind of idea that they've this, made it. Yeah, what you're describing yeah. is why this stuff is important, even if the police don't end up throwing someone away. Uh, surveillance has, I mean, I think it's borne out by sociology is when there's surveillance in place, like people just behave differently and they, uh, they self-censor. Like, that's exactly why this stuff matters, um, whether or not it gets to the level of, like, uh, you know, physical coercion. In, in a way, it's a kind of terrorism itself, because that's the point of actual terrorism uh, that, the, that, that they're fighting, uh, is that, yeah, 9-11, com- compared to, like, what drones take out, 9-11 takes out uh, a fraction of the amount, but the constant fear of it, or the constant, oh, you don't know where it's going to happen next, when it's going to happen next, like that kind of psychological warfare. This is a terrorism too, in a way, because if you start thinking everybody is in, might be a potential agent, might be whatever, it really inhibits your organizational powers. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, or your mental state. It's 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 crazy. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so uh, thinking about that online part, I think it's going to be a very big growing part of it. Like, like it's not just going to be like uh, rank and file mem- in-person members that join your organization, but there's going to be a lot of agent provocateurs. There was this guy, can I remember his name, but he was always appearing places. I think he was one of the new black Panthers. And he was always talking about killing crackers, this killing crackers, that doing all these meetings and going places. And I'm like, he was doing it for like years. I forget the guy's name. But when I saw him, I'm like, this guy, he keeps talking about killing crackers, killing their babies, doing all this stuff. He's been doing it for years with no repercussions. That's really creepy to me. That he can do that. I'm like, this guy's going to get some people in trouble because I think he's um, an agent. But he, and then I haven't heard from him for a while since. But uh, it was one of those new, it was one of those new Black Panther guys where um, suddenly, like, you weren't hearing about them anymore. Uh, As far as, like, for a couple years, there were, like, uh, these boogeymen. And this guy was everywhere. And suddenly you didn't hear about them anymore. And then when I see stuff like that, it just makes you think of that COINTELPRO. I don't know. I don't, think, I don't think this stuff has ever stopped, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, we cede a lot of our um, sort of uh, privacy in the name of security, um, you know, not just at the federal level, but right down to local cops. I mean, they're, you know, doing a lot of this kind of stuff, too. Yeah, the whole militarization of police, like when you see those protests now and the type of equipment they have is like mind blowing. It looks like real military um, equipment. Obama, uh, Obama has not been an angel in this either right because people because people kind of think of this as a bush and trump thing and then like uh obama's era is just like a uh a civil liberties dream you know but um obama's complicit in this kind of shutdown of transparency as well right oh absolutely i mean he was the one that really accelerated um throwing people in jail for talking to the press um disclosing these kinds of things and uh, i'm sorry i didn't answer your question before but People are scared shitless from that. Um, it has made my job, and not just woe is me, but it has made my job, um, you know, I can't even express how much harder it is to get people to, you know, tell you important things that the public should know now because they're afraid of that. Um, and that 
again, not to complain about myself, but that hurts the public because then they can't find out what, what it is that, you know, reporters like me might, might otherwise be able to find. I also want to know, like, we talk about all the danger to sources and stuff, but for reporters like you, for people who do your job, like, is there a danger for that? Like, um, are there risks that you guys end up putting yourself under? Is there a, uh, any history of, like, uh, pushback or retribution sought against um, the reporters who, who are reporting the leaks? Or has that been kind of understood, like, you guys are allowed to do that? These are just norms. Like, legally, um, the laws are sort of gray on this stuff. My guess is that in the next 20 years, we'll see a reporter um, indicted for what they'll call conspiracy. Because when um, what they've tried to, if you look at the indictment of Julian Assange, they include within that the argument that um, his talking to Manning and um, uh, kind of encouraging her to, to send the documents was part of a conspiracy to disclose that classified information. So my guess is that you will... They haven't crossed that line yet, and they got real close with Obama when they brought that New York Times reporter um, into court and, um, you know, threatened him with um, jail if he didn't reveal a source. Um, the administration and the Justice Department ended up backing down because Ryzen stood as, you know, he, he, he stood by his source and, and, and didn't reveal that. Um, and that was, a you know, people seemed um, upset that the Obama administration was doing that. My guess is that not too long from now, they'll they'll be able to be successful in that. As it stands now, that hasn't really happened. The U.S. actually has pretty good, maybe not laws, but norms around these sorts of things, um, where the illegality is defined as the person that discloses it rather than the journalist that gets it. But um, I don't think people should be complacent about that. I do think that um, the Justice Department would love, and I've heard you know hints to this effect um, from from friends of mine in the FBI and the Justice Department that they would love to be able to um, go after journalists too, because that would that would inhibit and um, you know, uh, staunch the reporting even more. Yeah, I'm sure it's not for lack of trying with desire that, um, yeah, yeah. you know, you guys have been able to operate the way you do. Some other stuff that really jumped out at me about this um, this thing, right? Okay, so they, they mentioned what you mentioned, right? Where they say the FBI first observed this activity following the August 2014 shooting of Michael Brown and Ferguson and the subsequent acquittal of police officers in that incident, you know? So like we said, that has, um, been, that has been, uh, that's been a scary thing, but they keep using words like small cells. Like they use like, uh, these terrorists, excuse me, these terrorist buzzwords of cells, which, you know, is kind of weird. Like, what is a cell? Is it like, um, DeRay, Netta and, Brittany Pacchetti, like doing a meeting in Ferguson, like, like cell was like, very weird and very loaded term, but you know, again, without examples, you have no idea if it's appropriate or not, but you know, this was that, what I found really interesting. Uh, there's different, there's different sections, impact levels, etc. And there's one part called key domain entities. And it says under this part, likely to target civilian and government entities that are perceived as oppressors, including, but not limited to, law enforcement officers, the U.S. government, members of rival BSE groups, and BSE uh, elsewhere in the um, document is set to stand for black separatist extremists. So they have another term called black separatist extremists, in addition to black identity extremists, right? And individuals based on race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and religion. The rival black separatist extremist groups as potential victims of violence was also something that made me kind of wonder like what is this mythical black identity extremists are talking about because when you put all as far as i know i don't 
I'm 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 wondering if they're gonna start using this to get like even like gangs, like you know, like uh try to claim like um somebody was like a blood or a crip or whatever, but is that a pro protest? Because some some of those uh people, some of those people who were in Ferguson uh protesting when it first kicked off, some of them were gang members who kind of put their put their um you know gang stuff aside and we're all about protesting for that time like like this thing just seems to be a, they want to lock black people up so they're just trying to make everything as broad as possible and get every single uh permutation of an arrestable black person covered under this thing so i was wondering what you thought about the rival black black groups thing like what what that was about because I, I really can't fathom a guess outside of like trying to get gang members or something like like I'm, i've never heard of like uh black lives matter the ray trying to uh, at- attack. What, what's her name? Opal Opal Tomedi or something. Like I never heard anything like. Right. Well, I mean, I can only speculate based on what level there is there. Again, with national security reporting, you never get the whole picture because it's so secretive, and and they abuse the national security, um, you know, exemptions to disclosures of information so much. But um, one thing that sort of fits with what you were intimating about the um, gang stuff was they also note in it that. I can't remember exactly how they put it, but they said that they, they, they recommend, this is for the FBI field offices, I assume, in the different states. Um, they, they recommend that you look at um, gun possession of, of these so-called black identity extremists because they said often you can get a felony charge out of that and that opens up all sorts of avenues for them to be able to um, you know continue to surveil or um, you know otherwise um, coerce from that individual, you know, information that they want about what, you know, maybe the FBI believes to be the rest of the group. But yeah, look at the part about firearms. I thought that was pretty telling that they explicitly use that as a tool to, um, you know, get a felony charge on someone. Oh, yeah, yeah. In in, in fact, let me uh, talk about this section. There's one called Key Threat Indicators. And this one is great because this one is basically if you try to do anything to protect yourself as a black person, uh, you're screwed. So Key Threat Indicators will make you a threat. Attempts to identify and collect information such as names or vehicles of law enforcement officers. So basically, if you try to, like, take a camera uh, phone of uh, a cop beating somebody up or take a license plate or take a badge number or anything, basically, you uh, have fit one of the criteria for uh, black identity extremists. Something that should be like a basic civil right. Identify and collect information about law enforcement officers, such as names or vehicles. Okay, paramilitary training, but that can be pretty broad because... Um, I mean, that's, that's this, all of these conservative groups. I mean, we're having a paramilitary march in Virginia right now with these... Um, you know what I mean? Like that's so broad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's some of the it's some of the racist crackpots that show up at gun shows, right. you know, or 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 these uh, pro gun marches that they do through black black neighborhoods in certain places. Uh, like like a lot of um, white supremacist uh, gun groups try to do these um, pro gun marches in black neighborhoods, and it's clearly like a show of intimidation or whatever and stuff. And yeah, I mean, apparently that's not a problem. But uh, but also like, what is paramilitary training? Say you know you're kind of worried about like the the climate and the whole MAGA stuff and you and your wife decided to take a gun class at the gun range i mean since lone wolves are covered here since lone wolves are covered here like you know you guys might be your own small cell your family is now a cell of lone wolves you know what i mean and uh you went to the gun range that's your paramilitary training so when uh the cops like do police brutality on say the father and you try to get um the names and the vehicles of the officers. Now you have two things. You try to get the names and uh, vehicles. We have proof that you were doing paramilitary training because you were taking gun lessons and doing every week at the gun range. The same thing that tons of white people in the South do all the time. 
as part of the culture, you know, but but now yeah, you're so black identity extremist. These these threat indicators, so called, it's, it's very funny to apply that to this country where like you might be able to say that like going around with a gun means something in like certain countries, but you can't say that about the United States. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. We're just like awash in that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, for sure for sure. Uh they have so they have they have attempts to acquire, sell, or maintain weapons illegally. Wearing of uniforms patches or insignia of a black identity extremist group but they don't tell you what a black identity extremist group is so basically a black lives matter t-shirt might be that well we've no, seen uh, the cops on the local level do this say um i mean i've done immigration reporting too in the militarization of that they'll look at some latino guy as a i don't know just a tattoo maybe of his mother's name or something they're like oh that's clearly a gang signifier and you know what i mean they just yeah you can conceive of anything yeah, a black fist, a black fist uh, shirt, you know, that you wear to a Black Lives Matter meeting. That could be a, uh, I mean, it could be, it could be anything. Like, cause those black t-shirts are like, so, so popular now. Like, like the one, the one that's like, um, uh, Asada, Angela, Obama, you know, right. they have all the lists of like black people. Right. I mean, that, that could be, that could be it. A, a bunch of stuff. Um, violent or threatening rhetoric that includes threats against law enforcement and advocating Separate social, economic, or political systems for minorities. And that latter part, like separate, I mean, that can mean anything. Um, attempts to recruit individuals with criminal or military skill sets, including gang members or current or former military personnel. So it's like, if you've been in the army, you can't, and you join Black Lives Matter, now they've done Black Identity Extremist behavior. Or if you're trying to get ex-felons off the street and challenge them in a positive activity, like organizing or whatever they'll say hey you trying to get like um people with criminal records to volunteer and organize maybe for like a voter is the opposite of disenfranchisement reenfranchisement i don't know what the word is but but say like um voting rights for felons and stuff like like a lot of like things that people associate with activism i under these things are now um key threat indicators like it's not all just crazy violent terrorist sounding stuff it's I mean, they try to code it in like as menacing languaging as they can, but it's it's pretty mundane activism stuff. Yeah, particularly like the troops thing. It's like the support our troops thing is always so tenuous and doesn't seem to apply to minorities. Whether yep, it's, yep, yep. It, whether it's immigrants serving there and that get deported, or you know now black folks. I mean, when you say when you say um, you know uh, people in the armed forces, that's a lot of ethnic minorities. You know. Yes, yeah, it's, it's true because because they're disproportionately in the army, like right. you know. So, so basically, disproportionately recruit uh, minorities, and now you're kind of banning them from doing anything to uh, help their community or their people once they get out, or now that now they're going to be terrorists, you know? And listen to these last two. These last two, I think, are <laughs> really interesting. Um, adhering to operational security procedures, such as attempts to locate recording devices, physical searches, removal of batteries from cell phones, close examination of pocket items or clothing. And counter surveillance. So, so basically, if you just try to find if you're being bugged, if you, or if you just ask somebody questions, like you know, like like you're suspicious of them, like if you make any attempts to protect the integrity of your organization from you know doing sweeps for bugs, for doing, uh, so it's kind of a circular logic, you know what I mean? Because they're gonna target you for whatever reason to say that you're identity extremist. And if you do anything to counter that, like, you know, like, I don't want to be bugged or I want to vet people to make sure you're not a cop or an agent, that becomes more proof that you're a black identity extremist. Like, like, like you can't even pat people's pockets or, 
or remove the batteries from cell phones. Like, like that's 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 crazy that that has become an illegal act now. Like, um, trying to protect yourself from inf- infiltrators. Yeah, it's all very vague yeah. and broad, and that's exactly that's exactly the risk here. And I I think um, that's the danger of keeping it secret is people can't people can't sort of do what you're doing, which is go over it and say, well, that doesn't seem reasonable because it's all internal. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the last one is group membership for blacks. And this is what I find interesting, that they, they say group membership for blacks or minorities only. I, I was interested they put blacks or minorities and so just minorities. Like they, So group membership for blacks or minorities only with demonstrated hostility to the prospect of non-black membership. So now like just saying, hey, we don't want... Um, white people in this group now makes you blacker than the extremists. Like, like you can't basically have anything for, for yourself, you know, it's, that's, and, and they kind of have the white identity extremist kind of stuff in here too. And I think that's to um, kind of flatten it and make everything seem like, oh, both sides do it. But white people trying to keep something for themselves and black people trying to keep something for themselves, putting them on the same level kind of ignores the population dynamics and power dynamics between the two different races, not really the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's 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 really it's really horrifying fine stuff. And I recommend everybody read your article, but I also recommend that people actually go through because I mean, you have a limited word count. You, it's not easy for you to go through every single horrific thing in here. I think you do a good job of um, going over it and stuff. But it's it's uh yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff, and I wanted to know like what has been your expectation when you uh reported this leak and what has actually happened well it's really disappointed i had hoped that um other folks in the national security space particularly at institutions with more resources uh and perhaps people with you know higher level sources than than i had would follow up and substantiate a lot of this stuff like we were asking earlier where are the examples where is this where you know what uh what do they mean by this and you know these agencies produce a lot of records they like to memorialize everything they like to memorialize as much as I can so I can go back and look at it. Um, and no one followed up. I, I will say that the representative, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the congressman's name. His name is um, Cedric. Um, mm, I know I know who you're talking about. Let me see if I can, I, I think I have it. I think I have it up actually. Um, Cedric Richmond. Yeah. Um, he's in the Congressional Black Caucus. He was the chair of it until recently. Um, he actually did take this story, read it in the congressional record and actually grill the FBI director about it. So I'm grateful to him for, for that. Um, I'm just disappointed that the you know media who I guarantee you has sources that know more about this for whatever reason, I can only speculate and, you know, different media institutions have different, you know, sort of incentives and things. So I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but, um, they weren't willing to follow up on that, this. And that was very disappointing to me, not from like wanting my story to be some big thing, but just, I had hoped that this would, um, lead to some reflection and, and hopefully some uh, skepticism again, like we were talking about before towards some of these agencies that, that people have sort of welcome with open arms now. Yeah, and we have a clip of uh, Cedric Richmond uh, grilling FBI Chief Christopher Ray about basically the information that uh, came from your report. And I'm guessing it's directly due to your report that he was able to grill him, right? Like, it's not... Yeah, because uh, they didn't... Which is amazing, because it's like, how am I having better access than Congress as to what's going on here? Like, Congress should know what's happening in these agencies. That they're the yeah, main exactly. transparency mechanism. For the, the argument, according to the intelligence community, is you can't know any of this stuff. It's all secret, but that's fine because Congress, we get we, we read them in on it, so they know what's going on. Well, apparently they don't. Our TSA uh, officers, uh, they play an incredible part in securing our 
country and our airports, and especially in New Orleans, where uh, they stopped a guy trying to board a plane. Uh, one officer was shot, one was stabbed, I believe. And uh, do you think it's time for us to pay? Do you think we're paying them what they're worth? So I, I do think uh, the, the pay structure for our TSOs has to be looked at. They are incredible professionals. We want to maintain uh, that cadre, that expertise as much as we can. They, they do a tremendous job. And I had a chance to meet some of the team uh, in New Orleans who was involved in that incident. And we're extraordinarily proud of the work they do. Uh, do you have a suggestion on what the what it should look like? Yeah, I, I, I do have a referral uh, because our, our acting deputy secretary, the TSA administrator, David Bukowski, is, is working intimately on this issue, uh, and we can get you the exact uh, details on, on our recommended path forward for TSO pay. If you could get that to the chairman and I, I know the chairman has a, a, a bill, but if you can get us that, that would be very helpful. And then with the last remaining uh, seconds, uh, Director Ray, you and I talked several times about uh, the term black identity extremists. Over the last couple of weeks, we uh, were alerted about something called Iron Fist. Is that an ongoing, does it exist, one? Uh, and two, is it still ongoing? And our information tells us it was to target individuals it classified as black identity extremists. Well, I, I'm not familiar with the, the, the name that you just used, so I can't uh, I can't engage specifically on the on that question. I will say, uh, as I think we discussed before, we have uh, moved away from that categorization. Uh, and I will add, as I think I mentioned to you in one of our earlier conversations, and this is very important to me personally, we do not open investigations into anyone uh, on on the domestic terrorism side unless we have one. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Credible evidence of a federal crime, two, credible evidence of a threat of violence, and three, in furtherance of an ideology. We don't have those three things. There's no investigation. So we don't investigate ideology, rhetoric, peaceful protest, anything like that. Well, let me just uh, ask unanimous consent to enter into the record uh, an October 6, 2017 article uh, from Foreign Policy entitled The FBI's New U.S. terrorist threat, black identity extremists, an October 13, 2017 letter from the CBC to uh, Director Ray asking for a briefing, an August 8, 2019 article by the Young Turks entitled Leaf, Leaked FBI Documents Reveal Bureau's Priorities Under Trump, uh, Under President Trump. Uh, but I will just conclude by asking uh, your commitment to uh, meet with us again uh, to give us an update of, of where we are, what it looks like, uh, if in fact there have been um, arrest, surveillance, investigations on anybody under uh, the old uh, black identity extremists and now what it's uh, consumed in. So I would just ask that uh, you commit to um, briefing us again on that particular issue. We'd be happy to keep the dialogue going. Thank you. With that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, and without objection on internet, into the record. Uh, Mr. Mack? Yeah, so I also want to talk about, because I, I think we've, you know, pretty much discussed everything we can discuss about this. It's it's hasn't been picked up on. I hope it does get picked up on. But right now, or at least recently, a, a big thing you've been talking about is the stuff with ICE. I wanted to talk about that as well. Like, the, the ICE stuff I thought was... Um, pretty interesting because that's something else that's kind of i mean I, I guess it happens both ways uh 
Black Lives Matter and the whole police brutality and all that stuff, it kind of trended and died down before the Black Identity Extremist memo happened. Like it, like it was just old news now. People just don't care anymore. And I feel something similar happened with the ICE thing where it was a really cool thing to care about for a while. You know, there's the abolish ICE hashtag and shirts and everybody was talking about it. And I don't know if it's just the election or just people just have no attention span. Like Me Too happens and other things happen. Like that's old. But how do you find, my perception is that the interest has kind of really died down about ICE. But you being on the on the front lines of it, like like what do you find? Do you find that it's still a hot topic or... Yeah, we're on the same page here. Uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff you're bringing up is actually really refreshing for me to hear because I feel like people don't, like what you were saying about whistleblowers and the crackdown on that, I wish people took them more seriously. I also wish they had followed through on the ICE stuff because we should remember DHS is not some age-old um, institution. DHS was the Department of Homeland Security, which is uh, the parent agency for ICE. That was created after 9-11 by George W. Bush. So it's not some crazy, hippy-dippy, lefty thing to say we can go back to the utopia we were in prior to 9-11, you know? But, but isn't, isn't that crazy that it just feels like it's been around forever? Like, it's just become part of our our consciousness now? Like, we don't even... Yeah, it's really frustrating. And then everyone rightly pushes back and says, like, you know, you can quibble with the language about abolish ICE because component parts of ICE were still in the government prior to that. But the point is, it's just frustrating to me how pedantic people get about these things when they criticize protesters. The point of the protest was, we want to get rid of this new stuff we have now that's really grinding immigrants into dust, you know. And I don't think that's unreasonable to ask for at all. And I don't understand why everyone dropped it. That's not an unreasonable demand. To me, I find there's two problems. I think this might be why people dropped it. I feel like there's people who, I mean, there's a type of like radical who nothing's ever good enough for them. Like, you know, they're very pedantic, like you said, or very like, oh, this is not, you know, radical enough. Or how do you want to do it through electoral politics? Good luck. You know, until you um, abolish capitalism or abolish this, it's not going to work. You know, you got to do everything you know like like there's 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 that type that's like a armchair revolutionary that you know whatever but it's also a type of person on the other extreme that to a degree that armchair revolutionary is right like people who just kind of make it into something trendy to do so they're just going to tweet about it all day um there's no real ground plan there's no real ground floor plan on how to do it like like who do we um agitate against uh who uh what legal channels do we take to make it happen like i think there's some people who are in the middle ground or who of who are like interested but also like pragmatic and have an actual like plan to do it but i think they're kind of minority and, and what you end up having is like overly serious people and overly frivolous people and those people like argue with each other and then it dissipates but on both sides whether it's like the armchair revolutionaries like you know purity test purity testing everybody or the people just hopping on a bandwagon because you know it's a cool shirt to wear or a cool thing to hashtag i think in general that's ruining like a lot of discourse i felt like it ruined a lot of what was happening with the uh, black lives matter too like people who were just sniping about how they weren't serious revolutionaries and then the black lives matter people themselves who were just kind of chasing media jobs and yeah there's I, I, a lot I mean, of sloganeering and this this sloganeering thank you yeah um, I don't know. You see this on the left generally. I, I tend to think part of it is a lack of um, just basic literacy about the institutions. And um, I tend to be of the view that you have to understand the institutions if you want to know how to change them. A lot, like I get criticized by leftists a lot. They say, why are you talking to people from ICE? Why are you friends with people from ICE? And, I, and you know, my answer is, well, you've got to 
sort of infiltrate it if you want to if you want to um, try to influence and 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 tell the public what's going. On. You know what I mean? Like so, yeah, for, for, yeah. you have to know the different agencies and the different parts of government that you have to tar- sort of target for with with respect to like political pressure. Like if you don't know the pressure points, you're not going to be able to get them to do what you want. I, I I think with revolutionary rhetoric being so in vogue lately, um, it's kind of led to a lack of basic civics. Um, exactly. Education. Exactly. I think so, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, it's almost kind of corny to talk about uh, civics now. You right. know, like right. um, like there's this lady, um, Yvette Carnell. She's always trying to create like a movement where people talk about uh, black politics uh, pragmatically, and she's very off-putting to a lot of people because she, um, you know, can be um, very agitating or whatever. But to her credit, she does try to um, talk about like pragmatic uh, politics. Um, she'll talk about a lot voting down ballot. She was talking about recently about voting down ballot. And then a lot of people who like the revolutionary talk were like, what's this down ballot business? You're just talking about voting for Democrats again. Screw that. We didn't want to hear that. You know, they just want to hear revolutionary talk, which I kind of, I kind of get to a degree. Like a, like a lot of people were sick of that period of, um, West wing. Yeah. No, uh, I'm liberal totally politics. Yeah, it's just yeah. like, but I don't see the distinction so much. Like they can both, like yeah. you can use tact to your tactical advantage, pressuring a specific sort of choke point that power has to go through uh, in order to achieve your broader goal. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I don't. Oh, 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 totally. Like everyone thinks everything has to be one extreme or the other. It's either right, right. you're you're a revolutionary or you're Aaron Sorkin or you're civil rights <laughs> respect, <laughs> respectability <laughs> politics, and there's no type of middle ground or blending of the two. Like it's weird because people always talk about. It's very trendy to use the word dialectical, but uh, people don't really want to do that middle part of the dialectical, which is like, you know, thesis and antithesis and synthesis. The, the synthesis part gets lost. People just want to argue. And yeah, yeah. But I mean, tell us some of the things that's been happening uh, in your um, ICE reporting that's been, that, that you think people need, need to know about. Like, I know there's something here about like, uh, we talked about like black identity extremists and stuff, but they're doing similar things with, with ICE too, right? Like, like, like monitoring different groups. Yeah. So, um, what you're seeing, I think in sort of the body of my reporting over the last couple of years is that the common theme has been an extreme militarization of stuff that historically has been handled by either the judiciary or when it was handled by law enforcement was handled by not the military, as in not the Pentagon. And now they're farming out a lot of the responsibilities that, for instance, CBP or even local law enforcement had to the DOD, to the Defense Department. Um, and going back to what we were saying just a minute ago, part of the reason I think that people aren't as horrified by this as I think perhaps they should be is because they lack, and I don't want to insult them, but uh, you know, through um, not being you know educated about these things or I don't know what, they lack the civics, basic civic, civics knowledge to understand why it's so dangerous to have the military operating on U.S. soil. So, for example, um, I had leaked to me uh, some what are called operations orders, which basically tell the military kind of what they're allowed to do in some certain theater of conflict or you know wherever they're operating. Um, and it's and it described how they could use lethal force um, in under certain conditions if there is a quote civic disturbance or civic unrest, I think was the term at a at a border point of entry. Now that's really scary, but if you don't know about the Posse Comitatus Act, if you don't understand sort of historically or you know geopolitically the tendency of militaries operating domestic soil to sort of eclipse the um, elected government and sort of slowly run the affairs of a country in a obviously very non-democratic way 
then you're not going to understand why that's scary. And so I think that's a big part of the reason that people don't understand why this is so dangerous. They get a, you know, a sort of broad sense. Oh, that seems kind of weird. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a dystopian movie sort of, but they don't get legally why, why that's dangerous to have the, because when the military stomping around, they have powers that the police couldn't dream of because then you can start to bring in national security stuff that the police couldn't claim to um, have have authority have the same sort of authority over. We have time. I'm one of those people who doesn't know about any of that stuff that you said people should know about. So if you want to elaborate on some of that stuff, by all means, uh, feel free to unpack it. Like, what was that act that you mentioned? The the so, posse. Yeah, there's something called the yeah. Posse Comitatus Act, which was established in uh, the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, and the idea of it was if you have standing armies, they tend to have a sort of cancerous effect on the body politic um, in that um, they, you know, like we were saying before, they, they can intimidate people. They um, just influence the, the sort of day-to-day conduct of, of local citizenry. They're not, they, they have, and, and above all, I think, they have powers that local law enforcement don't. So another document that was leaked to me, this is a separate report from the one I sent you earlier today, um, shows that they were um, using surveillance on the migrant caravan, um, and they were treating and they were looking for the migrant caravan. They were they were looking for what was called um, I'm trying to remember. It's they use an acronym FISS. It was Foreign Intelligence. I can't remember what it is, um, but the idea is they're paranoid that some foreign state had penetrated the migrant caravan, so that the Iranians had like assets somewhere inside of the, the these poor Hondurans that are trying to. Um, see if they can come to the United States. So, and, and those are power, and those are surveillance powers that local law enforcement they don't have the same resources or the same even legal lawful authority to to do. So, once you have the military in there, militaries are sort. It's kind of complicated. I I, I'm, I have to sort of I don't want to mislead anyone. So, I I just want to say that I'm simplifying this a little bit. But um, militaries are designed to sort of fight against other militaries, to fight against other states, and because of that, to fight against another state, you are given all sorts of powers. Um, that we would never give even local cops because to fight a state is a much, you know, more sophisticated adversary. You can start using spies. You can throw all sorts of civil liberties stuff out the window. And, and also clarify what you mean by states. Cause, cause I know what you mean by states. Yeah. Yeah. States yeah. Like, the, nation, like it, nation states, like nation, China, nation states, China, Russia, it, Iran. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want people to think that you're talking about like, like New York going to right. war with California or something. <laughs> right. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I understand what you mean by states, but just yeah. in case somebody yeah. doesn't, yeah, yeah, like nation states. So, like when you're when you're at war with a nation state, you're going to be recruiting spies. You're going to be um, hacking, you know, computers. You're going to be using satellites to do all sorts of crazy things. That stuff we don't tolerate a lot of that, or at least we're not supposed to in a civilized society because we understand that that has a um, corrosive effect on uh, you know democracy and, and civic society. The thing is, just because you have the military deployed on U.S. soil doesn't mean that they suddenly are going to you know, magically not be doing any of those things because that's all the stuff they've been trained to do. And that's what they're designed to do. That's what they're for. They're not for, we have, we have law enforcement for domestic stuff. So now we're using the same military, the same sort of coercive body that we use to supposedly protect us from the Chinese or the Russians or whatever it is. And we have them stomping around on U.S. soil. That is like, you can imagine that, that, that could go in certain directions, you know. I feel like that's something that uh, has been like a long time problem with the military in the in the U.S. is what to do with the military in times when there's not war or anything going on because you don't want to just get rid of people, have people fall into like uh, non-use or whatever, and suddenly you need them again. Like especially especially what the National Reserve is about, right? Like just finding a way to keep 
a military without explicitly having a stand a standing yeah or or they'll put them in um what is it called the uh national guard i mean there are other ways you can deal with this but what we have we have literal like marines at the border with like these are guys trained to go like uh you know, they're, they're, they're supposed to go to Iraq or Afghanistan or something. And, and they're literally here, like, arbitrating immigration disputes that they have no training to do. They don't have the mindset to do. Um, I mean, it's like you're going at with a fly with a bazooka. It's completely insane. And, and, and I understand why it's bad, like, in theory, potentially. But uh, how has it or any of this stuff been bad in uh, actual practice? Because I saw another article that you had that was talking about um, the list of detainee deaths in in ice custody i mean so so like there is like that's and bad stuff happening I, I, like i want to know like about these um deaths in ice custody and also if any of those deaths in ice custody have any type of relation to what's happening at the border with the military or if that's a whole different thing and if there's been deaths in the military stuff at the border as well um so the custody yes there have um there have been deaths in cdp custody uh, that's customs and border pr- uh protection Patrol. there have been deaths in uh, ice custody um and i think what you're seeing generally is systems that already didn't have great um health again it's really hard my sources are the nice discussion we've had in the late in the night so many times is just is this malice or is this incompetence and many times it's very unclear and i don't know that the distinction matters much anymore is what i'm increasingly mm-hmm. yeah. noticing because the system is under so much strain because president trump has started deporting so many people but not increased the resources a lot of the because so that when we're talking about ice people dying in ice facilities, this is ice health, like the healthcare wing of it. So it's like he'll maybe put a bunch more deportation officers in, or may, maybe a bunch of border patrol, but he's not going to fund the healthcare stuff better because he doesn't give a shit about that. So what what's happening is you're having a flow of people being sent back to different countries, and it's like you know such and such amount more than it was before, but you still have the same healthcare resources that you did in the past. So I think it's just sort of collapsing under the increased um, strain of the. Uh, deportations and and i don't know if a lot of people know this but one of the things that has changed in this country post 9-11 is um we used to have ins which is immigration and uh, naturalization services and it became uh uscis but uscis now under department of homeland security so basically it's all under department of homeland security like you know this this thing that you have brought up is a new thing like like um Actual paperwork and the immigration stuff is under the same, is the word auspice? It's, it's under the same umbrella. And that kind of changes, like, in subtle ways, the mission of, of what used to formerly be known as, as the INS. Because I, I know people have t- been telling me that same resource allocation is happening within the INS, t- I'm sorry, the, the USCIS too, where they're just moving all these people over to right. adjudicate right. the border disputes. Yeah. Uh, a exactly. lot of It's so funny yeah. you mentioned that. I was literally just having a conversation with the CIA. They call them CIS. Uh, the, um, and this person, again, not a leftist by any means, He's like, this is insane. I used to do sort of legal stuff, and now I'm arbitrating these completely idiotic things that shouldn't, you know what I mean? Like, so within, I cannot stress enough how much dissension there is within the agencies themselves. Oh, it's it's terrible. And there's so much backlog because they're taking so many people off of routine immigration stuff and putting them in to uh, deal with, to deal with asylum stuff. But the asylum stuff is really about Mexicans. They they came for everybody. They can't just say, we're going after Mexicans. They have to make asylum help for everybody. But then the, 
other people are being moved to just totally non-legal stuff altogether, like what you said. Stuff dealing with the border and administrative and enforcement. It's just a real mess and a nightmare. It's something else. And I don't know. It's But like you said, like I think that the problem, too, is it's not very sexy. It was sexy for like a second, you know, when uh, people were just looking for every excuse to protest Trump. But I think... Maybe it's because we're on to the election stuff now. I don't know. but Yeah, unfortunately, I think these things like impeachment and the Russian investigation, all this has a tendency to draw a lot of the air out of the room. Um, and I'm not you know, necessarily saying that none of that stuff should get reported. Obviously, that's all newsworthy. But it takes on this sort of absurd level of spectacle where all of the resources are put towards it. And then we're left, from the perspective of a reporter, we're left with very bare bones time and, and, and money and, and staff to, to cover really the, the nitty gritty of, of, of what this administration is about. So that, that yeah, that's something I complain about a lot. Yeah, I, I, I'll give just one example of some like weird side effects that end up um, happening, right? Is um, when you come, when you try to get uh, a, a green card permanent residence, if you have just been married for like a very short time, uh, if you've been married for like a very short time, you get something called conditional green card because they want to make sure it's not a sham marriage. So you have to come back in a couple of years and either A, show that you're still married and you're still plausible and with all the proof that comes with that, or you have to, you have to give a reason why you're not married anymore. And it's kind of negatively prejudicial if you're not married anymore. So, so you got to like show like it was a good faith divorce. You know, uh, he was abusing me. It just didn't work out, you know, like it wasn't a sham. And here's all our um, months of living together, even after the um, first interview and stuff. So people used to have to do, people don't know this, you have to do two green card interviews, one for the conditional, then one later on to reduce, I mean, to uh, remove the condition. It was a removal of condition. And that was your permanent, permanent resident card. Now, because they're putting so much of Department of Homeland Security resources and to other stuff, a lot of people, their first green card now is the permanent one because they're in they're in limbo so long waiting for the first appointment. Over two years have passed. So now they just give you the permanent one um right off the bat. You basically fit the you basically fill the condition just by waiting uh so long. But for doing regular things like just regular um immigration interviews, they don't have the people for that anymore. They're just putting them all in this um border and asylum shit yeah, yeah that's what you're generally seeing is like this dumb uh, people forget how dumb sort of authoritarianism and not not, not yep, that we're yep. in fascism now but it's like not as coherent as people think like since so much of it is spectacle to to generate and drum up support among his base it doesn't matter so much if the like technical goal which is you know remove a bunch of central americans largely and, and and put them somewhere else it doesn't really matter if that works so much as it looks like it's working and so because of exactly that, you know what i mean like it's about this it's about the spectacle so so basically uh sure a lot of people who are trying to sneak into the country or you know get asylum or getting in trouble but a bunch of people who are trying to get in via marriage you know are suddenly have an exploitable loophole that you know they might not have had before you're getting more people in that way, but you know the people that this red that this is red meat for don't see that. And like you said, it's kind of a uh, dumb and counterproductive. It still works. The spectacle is there. I wanted to ask two last questions. I wanted to ask what other things that you're working on that you could talk about uh, that you think uh, people should look out for that you think is good to know. And I also want to know what predictions you have for like what's going what's going to be happening in this space uh not just what's going to be happening the content wise like what the new um focuses are going to be but also like reporting wise 
I would say the biggest thing I've been working on the last couple of weeks has just been moving to DC. Um, I had resisted that for a long time, but it is increasingly a necessity, especially um, for finding sources. So if you're in the Washington area, you're in the government, um, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm on Signal. It's a free encrypted app. Um, you can reach me at 202-510-1268. Um, and I encourage you know, anyone in the federal level uh, to do that because it's amazing what you all know that you might not realize you know. But uh, as for sort of forecasts, um, we, we used the word spectacle just a moment ago. And that's something that this president, I think liberals underestimate him because yes, he's stupid in many ways, uh, in particular, in many ways, sort of peculiar to liberals that they, it, like, I can't imagine him doing very well in school. Uh, I don't imagine he's a reader, but there are other forms of intelligence. And one that he has very, has a knack for is spectacle. And so the fact that his spectacle, unfortunately, overlaps with um, a lot of suffering in terms of, you know, deportation and, um, you know, this whole idea of the cruelty is the point. Uh, I, I worry that coming into the election year, we're going to see a lot more sort of blood sport um, to try to appease and, and, and drive his face out to the polls. Yeah, I do agree, but he has a, he has a certain type of um, genius for spectacle. Uh, one of the things I used to like to do was watch compilations and clips of his debates, and he really did decimate that field of Republicans, oh, and it yeah. wasn't just blustering luck like you know it he really is good at spectacle it's something to see especially when you see it all at once in supercuts and you're right. like um i mean he yeah dis- so the republicans yeah. there he dispatched like two political dynasties uh clinton uh bush uh with you know hundreds of years of experience between them and the rest of the um yeah. republican and, 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 candidates and, 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 he, and he like made them like radioactive like i don't think jeb bush even in the field without trump <laughs> right. can, can never run again he's just become <laughs> right. like he looks he's like, like a daughter Mil- idiot. He's now. like Milhouse now. It's just it's yes, ex- yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, and, and even like his his new nickname, like Sleepy Joe, <laughs> like like it, it works. You it hate does, that it, it works. Does. But it does. I when I see him now, week, I, I'm like, I'm sorry, Sleepy Joe's a good nickname. When I was watching the debate, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it 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 is. And then uh, Hillary tried to play his game. She called him a dangerous <laughs> Don- dangerous <laughs> Donald. <laughs> I'm like that. Actually, sounds cool. Like, like you fucked up. That actually. Yeah. That's like makes an 80s, it, like, like it looks. That's like an '80s like skater nickname or something like. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or it, 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 it sounds like a Poochie type character from The Simpsons. <laughs> like, like, like a character that you introduce to a show to shake things up. Like you know. <laughs> For like he's three a new character. Yeah. 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 Exactly. He's dangerous, Donald. He's 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 a skateboarder. You know. <laughs> he he's joining the gang for this season of the of the, of the cartoon. Yeah, it's it's really bad, bad. Like it looks easy, but he it's not it's not easy what what, what he does. It's, it's it might not be um a traditional type of intelligence that inspires hope for you as a politician, you know. But but it it works for spectacle. Uh, last thing um to end it on is any general politics talk that uh want to do because I I've not I've not been following the whole Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders thing. And I just want someone to explain it to me. I try to decipher it from Twitter, but on Twitter, if you don't catch something the minute it starts popping, by two or three days, it's indecipherable. Well, so during the debate, um, and well, I guess prior to this, these were anonymous sources, so we don't know who they were, but apparently people familiar with the meeting said that, um, I think this was in 2018, I believe. Warren came out of a meeting with Sanders and told her advisors that he had told her that a woman can't win the presidency or, or, you know, can't be competitive or something like that. And that was reported by CNN. Uh, I think Warren had declined to comment on the record 
about it. But as a reporter, I find it very unlikely that they would have run this by her to verify it since the sources were anonymous. And then so about a day later, and this happened, uh, I think it was a day prior to the debate or maybe two days prior to the debate. Then the debate happens. And during it, they ask a question. You should really watch the video. It's unreal. It's the most, it has to be one of the most insane things I've ever seen. They they asked Sanders why he said it. He said, I didn't say it. And then they turned to um, Warren. This is the CNN moderator. And by the way, CNN broke the story, promoted it. And then they were the ones to ask, referencing their own story, uh, you know, Sanders and then, and then Warren. And then when they turned to Warren, they said, so how, So Sanders denies it, said I didn't say it. And then they turned to Warren and say, so how did you feel when he said it? And then the audience <laughs> bursts out laughing. Like it was like, a. it, it was such loud. You have to watch the video. It's unreal. The audience is oh, laughing man, at how man. absurd it is. And these are probably politics nerds that are like susceptible to this kind of silliness, you know. But for some reason, it was so absurd that even they thought it was, it sounded like young, it sounded like, um, what's that big bang theory? Like the laugh track just comes on and everybody's laughing when they ask that. So it just fell flat and it seemed like the audience wasn't buying it. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren? What did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? I think it's going to backfire because, I mean, he's he's been surging recently. And I'll, I'll be honest, I was one of those people that kind of uh, wrote him off because I felt like when it start, the campaign started, somehow a lot of that 2016 momentum and energy didn't seem quite there. And I'm like, what's not, like, working or what's not clicking? And I, I'll be honest, I kind of was thinking... um, you know, I hope for the best, but something's not clicking. But I think whatever happened, something has clicked. Like, it, I think he's he's number one now, right? He's taken. Yeah, according to the Des Moines Register poll, which is, you know, broadly considered the most, you know, prestigious and, and, and reliable one. Um, he came out in first by like, I think like three points above. Um, I think I think Buttigieg was second and then Biden was below that. And then Warren, if I if I recall. But yeah, he's he's surging. Um, it, he, uh, I wouldn't bet against him. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, I felt the same way. It did seem it did feel sort of lackluster. But I never trust my own perception because, <laughs> as they say, the revolution will be televised. Like the media is very selective about what it decides to cover, and that's not commensurate with the, necessarily the level of public enthusiasm or, or interest. In, in yeah, is is very true. And also, like uh, spectacle kind of moves the coverage too. And right. and, and, and and Bernie San- Bernie Sanders is not very big on spectacle. Exactly. He just talks. He just kind of stays on message exactly. with uh, the same the same things. What was really interesting too, I think, was um, he also was helped by just having a lot less gaffes because there's just been like a recent like, string of just a lot of gaffes. Like Kamala Harris right. was just walk, stepping on rakes left and right, you know? <laughs> uh, and uh, Joe Biden has just been... Like, like, like Joe Biden, I think, is going to be like Jeb Bush after this one <laughs> without even getting to... Uh, like, do, do, doing it to himself. He doesn't even need a Trump to really... Right. I mean, Sleepy... I mean, Sleepy Joe, I think, was just a capstone to an impression that everybody was already starting to exactly. get from him. Yeah, yeah, but there's a lot of dementia jokes going on with him and all this stuff. And I think that in addition to like Bernie's campaign people being good, I think a lot of these other Democrats have been really kind of stepping on rakes. And no, I, think, I totally agree. Yeah, I think this is Warren's, Warren's rake. I think it's really going backfire. I, I agree. Know. I saw a lot of leftists sort of getting really angry, and I, I can understand why they'd be upset about it. But I couldn't take it that seriously because I just didn't think it was going to I mean, if it didn't work on the guys in the audience who are probably a bunch of West Wing fans, uh, who's it gonna? Who's this stuff going to work on, you know? Yeah, yeah and, and the one thing I'll say is I think the leftists shouldn't 
overplay their hand with getting in everybody's replies and right. going right. at them because i think they're already self-destructing you don't need to give them a sympathetic exactly cause I yeah because yeah, i think i think they're waiting to just create a sympathetic the bernie bros are harassing me narrative just just they're making fools of themselves just let them do it right yeah. i agree i agree yeah so um yeah ken um thanks for joining us this was this was great glad that uh we finally made this happen i'm sorry it took so long for it to happen for people who don't know i i asked um ken to come on like a while ago and um it was my own fault it had nothing to do with ken but um i mean this ends up being as tiny as ever because in that interim no one's touched it but you yeah that's the nice thing about this story is um it's sort of horrifying whenever you read it it's not really pegged to any particular policy decision or or time sensitive thing so um thanks for having me on it was a lot of fun chatting oh yeah yeah for, yeah for sure oh oh here here's one last thing that i i was I had my notes to ask, but I forgot to ask. Yeah. Um, we've talked about sources and stuff, yeah. right? But um, I want to know what makes you do what you do or people, people like you, what, 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 how would you describe the profile of a investigative reporter? We talk about the profile of a source. Like, like I've always wondered like what um, makes people go into this. Cause, cause it's not, it's not an easy type of journalism to do. It's not like doing listicles and think pieces. It's like, it can be pretty frustrating. I appreciate that. Yeah, it does feel like it is a lot of work and doesn't get quite as much attention as some of the other things. But I would say, uh, at least for me, the reasons were not entirely noble. I'd like to believe that I want to, you know, try to help a little bit and do the right thing or something. And there's certainly that. But I was just always kind of a little shit. And until I had politics, I didn't really know how to direct that. So I think just being kind of like a troublemaker is like a really, a lot of reporters wouldn't tell you that. But in my opinion, the better ones are just kind of like oppositional and like sort of a pain in the ass. And then for me, journalism was really good because I I used to do like sort of like not constructive things when I was like a kid, you know? And then once I found out, oh, there's a way you could cause headaches for powerful people in, in a way that can actually like help the public. That was like, then I was like, oh, it's game on. Let's do this, you know? Here, here's one thing that I think has taken a lot of uh, resources from the good national security reporting. I think a lot of it got eaten up by years of impeachment focus. Like a lot of people were putting a lot of resources into oh, yeah. what basically it evolved into just stupid gossip about, about the Mueller report. Right. Right. Like that was just such a waste of a lot of minds, like l a lot of minds that could have been used more productively. It's quite, they have, drone. people have these amazing sources and they're all trying to figure out, in my view, I don't like reporting on stories that we're going to know the answer to it pretty soon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, Whatever happens with the investigation, we're going to find out pretty soon what Mueller's findings are. Like, just what let's wait. My opinion: What is the moral imperative there to like just break something a few weeks before it? Comes? You know what I mean? So yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just it's just minute to minute gossip. That's, right. that's all it ended up kind of becoming. And I think a lot of people's brains got broken from that. Like even after when they became became a big nothing burger, I think a lot of people just permanently brain broken or something because i thought after that was resolved people would just kind of go back to better reporting and it kind of hasn't happened is pe more people trying to cover their ass and salvage what they can from it because i guess they overextended themselves on that story i don't know and they unfortunately made a lot of terrible uh right-wing reporters uh look good you know there's a handful of right-wing reporters who were saying this is a nothing burger and now they're looking like geniuses for basically just having a little bit of common sense yeah, I feel like one common factor in a lot of bad reporting that's, that's happened has been that it has essentially, I don't think it's intentional on the part of a lot of reporters. Um, by and large, I think people sort of believe what they're doing. I don't think it's 
super common. You find people that are like overtly cynical, at least in my experience. But I, I think a big factor here is like drawing heat away from the Democrats for, for failures that they may have had. So like, um, I'm not saying that there wasn't weird stuff going on with Russia, but like part of that whole thing was to say, oh, the Russians stole it. Like it wasn't that Hillary ran a terrible campaign. Now with the impeachment thing, it's like, it sort of seems like liberals can't quite process that someone, and I sort of am sympathetic to this, that someone as horrifying and scary as Trump could like, you know, have as much power and there's not really any recourse. So, so they can't really process that. So then we have, oh, the impeachment is going to do something. You know what I mean? It's like, they can't really, it, it's like some sort of psychic way of processing and it comes out in these sort of types of stories that produce content that is sort of cathartic for people. I think. Yeah. And I think something else that kind of happens too, is that a lot of people, I think it's going to be going to be messed up. Trump has been doing like a whole lot of messed up stuff, but they wasted way too much political capital and media platforms on the impeachment stuff. And now when, when, and if it doesn't, work out they're going to have to try to bring the american public up to speed on a lot of how fucked up he's been in the past four years right. in a substantive way all at once and i think it's not going to be as good as if they were constantly reporting on his bad actual governing like right. his his actual bad governing has been getting very little attention except for like that period when they're focusing on him locking kids in cages other right. than that you know a lot of fucked up stuff has not been getting covered that they're going to have to try to give the american public a crash course on in like one in one year and it'll be interesting to see it's like cramming for the test we'll we'll get we'll figure it out we'll read the whole textbook the weekend for the for yep the yep exactly <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah yeah so, so thanks and um yeah definitely people check out uh ken at the nation and and also we put his information in the the show notes any sources who listen to champagne sharks who have information that they think uh ken and the rest of the world needs to know feel free to contact him and uh do you want to give me information on one last time and then yeah. we'll close out install the signal app then encrypt your text messages it's free and then you can text me at 202-510-1268 if you don't need a secure way to contact me my dms are open on twitter and just um, say hello in there great and uh also subscribe at patreon.com com forward slash uh champagne sharks and become a member and with that have a good night ken and good night to everybody really nice talking to you man have a good weekend you too bye, bye.